The scripture reading for this morning is 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 13. Please stand for the reading of God's word. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we're at the end of a three-week mini-series on church leadership. Next week, we start the book of Hebrews. Two weeks ago, we looked at Ephesians 4 and saw uh, that pastors are God's gift, among God's gifts, to his sheep, to his church. Last week, we looked at Ezekiel chapter 34 and saw how God will judge, God will hold to account those shepherds who fail to faithfully shepherd his sheep. And this week, as we open our season for officer nominations, we're looking at this classic passage on elders and deacons. God provides church officers. He provides elders of whom, among whom pastors are numbered and deacons to lead the church. Just after the passage that I read this morning, Paul refers to the church like this. He refers to the church as the household of God, which is the church of the living God, and the buttress of the truth, a buttress of the truth. And those three phrases all piled up together, the household of God, which points to God's authority over us and also our you know, filial, brotherly, sisterly relationships within the church, the church of the living God, which points to the glorious reality of the presence of the living God among his called out people, here on earth, a a pillar and buttress of the truth, which points to our responsibility to hold up the gospel to a watching world, all that lends a sense of wonder and a sense of gravity to what would otherwise perhaps be seen as just a mundane and fairly straightforward set of instructions in the Bible for what we should be looking for in officers, in church elders, and church deacons. So I'm praying as we make our way through this passage this morning that the two things will happen. First, that you will have a better sense of what to be looking for in officers, men 
who would be called potentially to serve as elders and deacons in this church and what to be expecting of those men who are already officers in this church, elders and deacons. I pray that you'll, that you'll grow in your comprehension from Scripture of that because if you're a member of Grace Church, now is the time to be praying and thinking about who God may be calling to serve in those offices. But I also am praying that you will, as we make our way through this passage, grow in your adoration for the God who calls qualified men to play such an important role in the building up of his church on earth. It really is just one more example of the wonder of God that he would call flawed people, that he would give men and women in his church gifts to serve and then call flawed men to serve as officers in order to build up his church on earth. It's part of the mystery. It's part of the wonder for which God should be praised. And I pray that one of the outcomes this morning is that we are all the more praising God for what he is doing to build his kingdom through his people here on earth. So three things to see from the text when it comes to identifying church officers. First, what we resist, what we tend to resist. Second, what we expect. And then third, what we often overlooked. So what we resist, what we expect, and what we often overlook. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come before you this morning. We do pray that you would be our teacher by your spirit, through your word, that we might grow in conformity to it in heart and in mind, that we might live for your glory this day and every day that we have on earth. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So first, what we resist, and we tend to resist the fact that only qualified men are called to be officers in Christ's church. Not all men are qualified. Not all men are called but only men are called, and for many, that is an almost impossible truth from Scripture to accept. But God calls qualified men to the office of elder and deacon. That's clear throughout this passage. Constantly, we have referred to he, or men, or husband of one wife. Paul is clearly referring here and in Titus 1 to men as those whom God calls to the office of elder and deacon. Now, why is that? We know why it's not. We know it's not due to any innate superiority of men. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Man and woman are equal in dignity and honor before God. There is no innate superiority in men. Man and woman alike reflect the very image of God. So it's not due to any innate superiority in in men. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Again, pointing to the equal dignity and worth value in the eyes of God for the purpose of God in his, on earth, in his kingdom, as part of his church. Not any kind of issue of one being of greater worth over the other. It's also not limited to what was going on in Ephesus. Again, Paul's writing to Timothy. Timothy is in the city of Ephesus. This is not something that's limited to what was happening in Ephesus. And we know that from verse 15, which I referenced earlier, 
but we'll read now. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. He's saying, this is what I'm referring to. The church in every age, in every place is to be this, and this is how God's people are to behave in that church. He's not qualifying what he's saying because of something happening with the Artemis cult in Ephesus. He's referring to what it means to be the church in the world. He's making application. He's encouraging, calling, commanding Timothy to make application there in Ephesus. We also can't just dismiss this by saying something like, well, we now know better. Are we really going to say that we've arrived at the place in the 21st century, we've reached such infinite knowledge that we can say we know better than what Scripture says about how the church ought to function here on earth? I mean, where do you stop with that kind of a thing if you begin to go down that road? And the Bible challenges every culture in some way. It's part of what lends to the, to the, uh, the argument that the Bible is the Word of God because no one escapes being offended by it in some way in any culture. And here, in our culture, it pushes on us in hard ways. So if it's not those things, what can we say? Well, Paul earlier in 1 Timothy grounds this simply in the fact of God's creation. This is is grounded in God's created order. It's to be reflected in the home and to be reflected in the church. And Paul's talking about here what that looks like in the church. How is that fair to women? Kathy Keller takes up that question in her book, Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles. Kathy Keller was on an ordination track in the PCUSA. The PCUSA is the mainline Presbyterian Church. The PCA broke away from the PCUSA in 1973. Kathy Keller was on an ordination track in the PCUSA. She was in seminary. She was hearing all these arguments about why Paul was wrong in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And she wasn't convinced. All these reasons that were being given why clearly this is not something that should be applied today, she was like, you failed to persuade me. Scripture plainly teaches these things. And so she left that track, was convinced, and, and pursued wholeheartedly opportunities to serve the church, but not as a pastor, not as an elder. And her burden in this book that she wrote was to help people who read it to understand that this is not a justice issue in the same way that equal pay is a justice issue. Rather, it is a theological issue. And it simply boils down to what did God say, why do we have to obey it, and how can we do it? Those are the questions that ought to frame our understanding. She's saying in that book, this passage, it's a theological issue. How are we going to live before God concerning what he says in this passage? I'm going to read you a quote from her book. She says this, justice in the end is whatever God decrees. So whether or not you are able to see justice in divinely created gender roles depends largely on how much trust you have in God's character. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Can we define justice as something other than God's design? Using what as our guide? What do we know that he doesn't know? If we are thoroughly convinced of God's wisdom, love, and goodness, 
then when our desires and God's commands are at odds, we know to put our trust with the infallible rather than our all too easily manipulated desires. And the theological point that she makes in her book is simply this. In the context of church life, church officers and church members each have an opportunity to pattern their conduct in their lives as they relate to one another after Jesus. Jesus, who is the head of the church and remains the head of the church, even today, again, you heard me say this a couple weeks ago, I'm not the head of the church, the, the, uh, the elders are not the head of the church, Jesus is the head of the church. But Jesus, in his earthly ministry, then and now, remains authoritative over, head of the church. And elders, deacons, pastors, are called to pattern their conduct, their ministry after Christ and his way of leading the church. But Jesus also, though equal with the Father, eternally equal with the Father, willfully submitted himself to the Father's authority while on earth in his ministry. Ontologically one with the Father, economically in his earthly ministry, submitting to the will of the Father. And we have an opportunity as church members to pattern, to pattern ourselves like Jesus did in his earthly ministry under, and hear me say this now, under the authority of church officers as they are submitted to the authority of Christ. Okay. That's the picture we get in Scripture. So if you're not an officer or a deacon, if, if, a, if a woman can't be an officer in the church, not an elder or deacon, and if not all men are called to be officers in the church, elders or deacons, then what can a woman do in the church and what can non-ordained men do in the church? And we believe the scripture teaches that all people are gifted to serve the church in particular ways. All people have, all kinds of people, both men and women have leadership gifts. Both men and women have teaching gifts. Both men and women have gifts that are uniquely suited to roles of, of service and practical helps in the ministry, in the church, in our life together. All people are gifted in these ways. But out from among those who are gifted in serving with the character of Christ, as we'll see in a minute, in these ways, God calls certain men to serve as officers in his church, all for the glory of God. If you, if you get our growth group guides, I'll be including a link to our um, denominations study committee report on women in leadership in the church. It's a wonderful document. It's long. It's like 60 pages, but I'm going to send a link. You can read it. I'm also going to send a, a one-pager that outlines our attempt here at Grace Church to be obedient to what Scripture does teach, that because all people are gifted in these ways, it's not simply a matter of what we will permit women and non-ordained men to do, but what we will encourage and equip them to do in accord with what Scripture commands. So we tend to resist what scripture plainly teaches. But then what do we expect? Let's turn to that secondly. Well, we expect competency. We expect these guys to be good at what they do. But do we expect the right competencies? 
So we look back at the passage and we see concerning elder competencies in verse 1 that they are overseers. And so they have a position of oversight, of authority in the church. We see in verse 2 that they are to be able to teach. I'm sorry, that's later in the text. That they are to be able to teach and, so they, and, and committed to sound doctrine. And then we see also that they are called to care for the church. Verse 5 Someone does not know how to manage his own household. How can he care for God's church? Together with Titus chapter 1 and 1 Peter chapter 5, you get a picture that emerges as when it comes to these elders who are called to be shepherds over the flock of God that is his church. And that is that elders must know the sheep, they must feed the sheep, they must lead the sheep, and they must protect the sheep. Elders are called to know the sheep. They must know the sheep personally make regular contact with them, build real relationships with them, know them. Elders, pastors, are called to feed the sheep. That involves the teaching ministry of the church. It involves growth group, leadership, discipleship hour, teaching, one-on-one discipleship that we don't even see happening, but is happening nonetheless. Elders are called to lead the sheep. As we'll see in this passage, and and as we learn elsewhere from the Apostle Paul, primarily by being an example to the flock. Lead the sheep by being an example. Lead the sheep through personal counsel. Taking the, the comfort of God that we have received in the midst of our own affliction and comforting others with it in the midst of their affliction. Elders are called to be exemplars when it comes to that kind of redemptive vulnerability with people in their brokenness. Elders must protect the sheep, protect the sheep against false teaching and pursue the sheep when they wander. Elders are called to know, feed, lead, and protect the sheep. What does the Bible say about deacon competencies? Well, in verse 10, it says the deacons are to be tested first and then serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. And so there's this picture, again, of gifts that are present Gifts that we'll see as we look back at the proto-deacons in Acts chapter 6, gifts that have to do with with serving, with mercy, with administration. And so there's a call to giftedness. There's also a call to sound doctrine for deacons as well. In verse 9, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children in their own household. I'm sorry, it's verse 12. Verse 9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And so there's a, a comprehension of and a treasuring of The word of God, both elders and deacons, are to be committed to sound doctrine. And then together with Titus 1 and Acts chapter 6, you see this picture of a commitment to mercy ministry. Acts chapter 6 is an interesting passage because you don't precisely have elders in Acts chapter 6. You have the apostles, and you don't precisely have deacons. You have kind of a preview of the deacons in Acts chapter 6, but together in that dynamic, you begin to get a picture of how elders and deacons are to function together in Christ's church, providing servant leadership in word and deed ministry. They go together. They're meant to go together. This is why deacons are so important in Christ's church. Elders, pastors as well, are to be given over to the ministry of the word and prayer, like we saw in Acts chapter 6, to to this teaching, shepherding ministry that I've just outlined. But, But deacons are called to provide leadership to Christ's church when it comes to those very practical, physical, 
needs that need to be met within the congregation. And as that's happening together in tandem, you get the very kind of word and deed ministry together that imitates Jesus's word and deed ministry on earth and bears witness to the reality of who he is. This is why, this is why every church needs both elders and deacons to provide leadership to Christ's church so that those word and deed ministries can go together in a beautiful way to give a picture of who Jesus is to the watching world. The church, you members of Grace Church, are called to recognize those competencies in men who are already doing it. You don't marry potential, right? You don't marry someone because they have the potential to be a good spouse. You marry someone who is demonstrating through their character and conduct that they will be a good spouse. You don't nominate or elect potential when it comes to officers in Christ's church. He seems like he might be a good teacher. He seems like someone who might hold to the sound doctrine. He, he seems like someone who might be someone who has a burden for mercy ministry. No, you, you look for the men who are demonstrating those competencies. You make a nomination so that that man can begin to discern, am I called to this? Am I called to this office in Christ's church? So look back at verse 1. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And men, not enough of you aspire to the office. I want to challenge you in this sermon to have an aspirational view of church leadership, to have an aspirational view of your involvement in the church of Jesus Christ here in this place and in this time. I know you're busy. I know you have other commitments. I know you're seeking to be a faithful husband if you're married, a faithful father if you have children, a faithful employee at work. We are called to be faithful along the full spectrum of our lives. But this is part of your life. Are you being faithful in this part of your life? Are you at least asking the question, God, are you calling me to this? Do you have a desire for that role to serve as officer in Christ's church? Do you? Or, or is this aspect of your life just an escape from all those other areas where you have responsibility? If you're gifted, you're called to serve. If you're serving and called to office, you need to respond faithfully to that call. But again, we often focus on competencies, but what do we tend to overlook? We tend to overlook the very emphasis that we have in Scripture on character. We tend to overlook character. Think back to what we tend to expect in terms of competency and the kind of, the kind of character, the kind of personality that tends to align with the competencies that we tend to expect. We talked about this last week and the mistake that so often churches make by looking to the world's model of what constitutes good leadership and expecting that to be what constitutes good leadership in the church. 
Sam Alberry, in an article that I referenced last week, mentioned that here in the United States, he's a Brit, here in the United States, he sees that we tend to want pastors who are the CEOs, who have an entrepreneurial bent. He said, for him, back home in England, it's that people want the general. They want the one who's the decisive military-type leader in the church. And neither one of those things, in and of themselves, are detrimental to the church. It's good to be bold and decisive in leadership. It's good to have an entrepreneurial spirit about you. But that's not what Scripture emphasizes. Just listen to some of the things that are... I'm going to quote some things from this text in 1 Timothy 3. I'm going to draw in a little bit from Titus chapter 1, from 1 Peter, and also from Jesus' teaching in Matthew and in Mark as well. So let me just read these kinds of things and, and just ask yourself... Is this what I've been looking for in the leaders in Christ's church? 1 Timothy 3, verse 3 says, not violent. And that word violent doesn't primarily have to do with giving to physical blows. It has more to do with the idea of being pugnacious or being defensive and always looking for a fight, right? Not that, but rather gentle. When was the last time when you thought about a potential nominee for office or deacon in Christ's church and that your first thought was, but is he a gentle man? First Timothy 3 verse 8 says, not double-tongued, but sincere, a person who keeps his word. First Timothy 3 2, first Timothy 3 8, Titus 1.9, he must be respectable, self-controlled, sober-minded, or, or clear-headed. 2 Timothy 2.24, not quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. When was the last time you thought about an officer in the church, an elder or a deacon, and asked the question, but is he a kind man? Because if he's not a kind man, no matter how gifted he is, you're marrying potential. Is he a kind man? Kind to everyone. That's 2 Timothy 2.24. Matthew 23, 6 and 7, 1 Peter 5, 2, not serving for shameful gain. That is honor in our, in our case, honor, power but serving instead eagerly. 1 Peter 5.3, not domineering, but setting an example. When was the last time you said concerning a potential officer or you know, deacon, elder deacon in the church? Not first, are they a good teacher? Are they a good servant? You know, mercy ministry type person? Those are important. Those are important competencies. But did you first ask, but are they setting an example of the kind of Christian that I want to be? Are you beginning to feel the significance of what it means to pursue character? Men, if you're wondering if God's calling you to this office, yes, get involved in ministry if you're not presently serving in ministries. But pursue above all things godly character. Because without godly character, you are not called. 
Matthew 10, 43 and 44, again, I referenced this last week. Jesus talking to his disciples who said, give us positions of power at your right hand and at your left hand. We want to be co-rulers or kind of second in command in your kingdom, Jesus. And Jesus says, you know what? You sound just like the leaders of the world. You're not to be like that. It is not to be so among you. Who are we to be like? Not CEOs and generals. Again, not that there's much that we can learn. There is much that we can learn from the world of business leadership. But ultimately, we're called to be like Jesus. We must be looking for the heart of Christ in the heart of men who will lead Christ's church. There is no alternative. There's no alternative to faithful leadership in Christ's church apart from the character of Christ in the heart of the men that he is calling to lead. And we must be looking for that in the heart of all Christian leaders. Because it's the kind of thing we need to be looking for in the heart of all Christians. The church is God's primary vehicle for accomplishing his mission on earth. Can I say that again? The church is God's primary vehicle for accomplishing his mission on earth. It's not parachurch missions. It's not individual missionaries. The church of Jesus Christ is God's primary vehicle for accomplishing his mission on earth. He's calling and has called throughout every generation a people to himself from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation to be his own. And in every generation, God equips men and women to serve his church for the sake of that worldwide mission. But from among those men and women that he has called, he equips and calls men to serve in the offices of elder and deacon. Now, I last preached this text in 2018. And I'll ask now, at the end of this sermon, what I asked at the end of that sermon. Who will pick up the mantle of leadership for Grace Church? Who will receive the baton? Who are the men and women who will serve on leadership teams and help to, help to set the course for fulfilling our mission as a church to make mature disciples of Jesus Christ in ever-increasing number? And who are the men who will aspire to serve as elders and deacons in the church? It's not a question of where are they. You are here. It's a question of whether or not you will respond. So the challenge to all of us as we consider this church that Jesus Christ is building, the challenge to every single one of us, man called, man not called, and woman alike, is will I take seriously my place in God's mission as part of this church in the world? Will I step up and recognize that I'm called to faithfulness in this sphere of my life, just as I'm called to faithfulness in every other sphere of my life? But then even as that call from Scripture is going out to every single one of us, there are some numbered among you whom God is calling to serve as officers in this church. And my challenge to you is, are you asking now, am I being called to receive the baton of leadership when it comes to officership in the church? Next generation leadership doesn't begin with the next generation. Next generation leadership begins right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would provide men and women in this church, many of whom are doing this, but Lord, all of us need to be challenged to, to recognize that we're called to faithfulness in this area of our life, that you've given gifts to each of your people, and we are part of, a vital part of your mission 
here on earth through Grace Church. What a remarkable privilege and a joy it is to know that you're calling every one of us as Christians to serve you in ways that are significant for the sake of your kingdom and your glory in this place. So Lord, I pray that as we close out this little mini-series that each and every one of us will be stirred in our hearts to have a great desire to serve you with great joy out of the giftedness that you have given us for your glory. But then, Lord, we recognize what your scriptures teach, that there is a place for elders and deacons in the church, and that you call some men to fulfill those offices, to fill those offices. And, Lord, we trust that because this is your church, that you have men in this church whom you are calling to that office. We pray, O Lord, that you would work in their hearts and that you would work in the hearts of the members of this church to identify them. Lord, would you continue to equip them for the work? And Lord, would you build up your church here at Grace Church through each and every one of us, no matter which role we serve, in which we serve. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.